0: Elizabeth Pizzani and colleagues writing in the BMJ in an analysis article make a case for the benefits of sharing data collected in low- and middle-income countries. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and in this podcast I caught up with Elizabeth before she headed into Deepest Borneo to collect more data. I wanted to talk to her about what data sharing means to her as a researcher, and how she protects her research participants when she shares their data. Elizabeth, you start your article by saying, as little as a decade ago, many researchers working in global health recoiled from the idea that they should openly share individual patient-level data. Were you one of them?
1: I mean, in a way, yes, and in a way, no. I'm one of those people, and I think there are many researchers like me, who really believe that we want to uh, get the most out of our data, that we want to do as much as we possibly can to turn it into better health. So, in principle, I'm all for data sharing. And yet, you know, when someone in some well-financed group in seattle that's got you know three teraflops of processing power and 400 phds and whatever Mm -hmm. wants to play with your data you can't help thinking you know it was me that was stopped by the cops and you know trying to get through the red light district at four in the morning with a bunch of samples and it was me that was getting my research team out of jail and you know so yes in principle i absolutely supported data sharing always but there's always this visceral thing i was like oh that's my data yes. um, and i think getting over that has been a struggle for for many of
0: us You've given us a flavour of the work you did there, but could you fill in a little more detail for us about the kind of data that you're collecting uh, in these low and middle-income countries?
1: So my it's it's been a, a long time now, and it was uh, yes that decade ago when we were all busy recoiling. But um, my work is was principally. In, my field work was principally in uh, HIV-related risk, so you're and in, in Asian countries, uh, particularly in Indonesia. So you're taking samples in nightclubs and in red light districts, uh, in shooting galleries where people are shooting up heroin around you. It's um, interesting, but it's you know sort of dangerous both to you and to your research subjects if their identities are revealed in any way um you're talking about illegal behaviors and highly stigmatized diseases so that was another thing about sharing that was always sort of at the back of your mind is mm-hmm. is this of course we anonymize our data but always at the back of your mind is is there any way that someone could identify the location, the cluster that might bring them close to knowing which people in my data set are infected with HIV, which of them are uh, engaging in these illegal behaviors. Um, so that's always a something that is at the back of your mind, although I think that many people use those questions of confidentiality as a sort of fig leaf for a more Uh, visceral objection to to sharing their data because of fear of other
0: people taking credit. Yeah, and I was going to say, when we talk about patient-level data, often we're thinking about these sort of big, randomised controlled trials, where there isn't that perhaps that kind of connection that you have um, between a researcher and their research participants. Uh, You must feel very, very protective of the people taking part in your research. Well,
1: Of course you do. And that has two effects. I mean, on the one hand, you want to, as you say, protect their identities and everything else. But on the other hand, you really give a damn about giving something back to to that community because they've been incredibly brave and generous to share with you uh, their data and their body fluids um, and, you know, incredibly intimate information about um, illegal behaviors, about risky behaviors, about highly stigmatized behaviors. So you think, God, they've given us all of this in the interest of science. And we say we're doing this to bring benefits back to your community. But actually, there's often a very, very, very long lag and sometimes a permanent lag. um, between doing the research and actually translating the the results of that research into any kind of action and part of that bag is truthfully that we never get around to analyzing about two-thirds of the data that we collect when you're designing a questionnaire you think okay I'd like to, you know, it'd be so nice to know this and this and this and this. And then if we ask that extra question and if we took that extra sample and if we ran that extra test, we could get this and this and this out of it. But truthfully, maybe six or seven times out of ten, if you're in an under-resourced situation, you don't have a lot of PhD students or colleagues who can help with things, you're actually on to writing your next study protocol and your next grant application before you've analysed even half of your data. And so for me, another impetus for data sharing is really part of that giving back. Look, if I haven't got around to doing everything I could with the data, at least give someone else the chance to because it might benefit this population.
0: So was that what took you on this conversion from being a bit sceptical a decade ago to to writing this article for us now, which really champions data sharing?
1: I think it was a big part of it, and it was also knowing that I wasn't alone in that, um, that people have been, you know, working much harder at it than I ever have, and many of them are are co-authors on the paper. So I, as a kind of mark of, you know, my willingness, I did share um, our anonymized data sets on Dataverse, which is one of the... um, places that you can archive data sets and if they're quoted they do have a quote, a DOI and etc. Um, and there are several, there are FIG chair and F1000 and various others. Um, and so I put my data there and I noticed something quite interesting which is you know, there's always this fear that oh my god someone else is going to use my data and, and find out all kinds of things that I didn't think of or this or that. And in fact the downloads of the data have actually been rather few but the downloads of all the associated materials the protocol the questionnaires the metadata the data dictionaries um even i put the analysis code up there those have all been downloaded much more than the data itself and i thought that was really interesting and and so over the years i've worked with a number of people who um, have gone much, much further. And I think that one of the key findings um, that we tried to uh, bring out in, in our article was that it's actually the curation of data that makes it valuable for sharing. It's not the act of Sticking your data somewhere on the web where someone else can access it. What makes it valuable, what makes it usable, and what makes it useful is actually for it to be in a curated platform where you can bring together different data sets with similar variables, or standardized variables, and look at differences between populations over time, differences uh, between different studies, with slightly different um, outcomes and I think that you know so I've stuck up there a bunch of data about transgender sex workers in Indonesia, but I know that there are people who have data about transgender sex workers in Thailand and in Bangladesh and in India, and if those were all on a site that were with well curated data, standardised uh, variable names and um, you know that that variable names that are easily comparable. And that means, of course, using definitions that are easily comparable. If you had those well-curated data, then you'd be able to do really interesting things comparing between different levels of risk in different countries at different time points, etc. So the important thing about data sharing, I think, is recognizing that the real hurdle to making it useful is making that investment in Uh, in in standardization and in curation and really that's a
0: desperately unsexy subject (laughs) Um, I was going to ask as well uh, part of the data set that you've collected, obviously um, you're talking about a quite specific population in a quite specific area Um, and you said that there were questionnaires so um, obviously there's a qualitative element to that Um, it's all very context specific um so how do you actually go about anonymizing data sets like that to be able to share them in the way that won't you know potentially identify the people that you you want to protect
1: the anonymization is um is a science in its own right um in fact the whole of the unsexy data curation is a science in its own right and it's not one that that I'm any good at. So then you go pleadingly to your colleagues who are, I think, the most undervalued people in the whole scientific enterprise who are your data managers and your data scientists. And you say, could you do this for me, please? And they do. So the magic behind it, um, I have to say, I I don't know myself. And and I think that part of the problem that we have is that still a very, very large um, a uh, number of clinical trials and other, I'm doing field, observational field surveys, but taking samples, a very large number of those uh, trials, basically people are doing their own data management um, because we don't have posts resourced for that. Mm. And even if, if I look back through my own hard drive, it's, you know, it's so embarrassing. You've got Jakarta HIV sex worker final, Jakarta HIV sex worker final 1.1, 1. 1. <laughs> Jakarta really final sex worker 0. 0.1, you know, and you're like, okay, you go back to it six months later, let alone 10 years later, um, and try and remember which data set is which, no idea. But if you put into a grant application, a significant amount of money for data management, it's the first thing that gets taken out by someone who'd rather see you buy a microscope because that's what they know about. I don't know that I've ever sat on any uh, committee, actually, where funding committee or been associated with anyone where there's actually someone whose real expertise is data management. So it constantly gets under funded underrated and it is an expensive business because it's a real
0: expertise yeah and with regard to that there sounds like there are you know potential pitfalls um and a lot of the objection that we hear uh, about uh, data sharing is the danger of release of private information that could be you know traced back to people have you heard any cases where there's been that sort of data disaster and those connections have been made
1: they're They're vanishingly rare. There have been cases, for example um where a community has been stigmatized um because it's known that a high proportion of cases um, have come from that one community, so it's not about tracking down individuals, but it's about you know seeing that in this village, a uh, uh, very famous example um, dates from the mid 1990s in in China, in the central provinces of of Henan, um, which are big agricultural areas, but um, they also made a lot of money. The peasantry um, supplemented its income. The farmers supplemented their income by selling plasma um, to commercial uh, blood product companies. And as a result, there was a massive outbreak of HIV, but some villages were very, very much worse hit than others. And those villages basically never managed to sell another cabbage. So the only other thing that they'd been making money of, agriculture, was essentially shut down because... It was published that that X percent of HIV cases came from this village or that village, um, and then they could no longer, you know, e- even exist as, as communities because of the stigma attached to it. So things like that do happen, but overall, I think the the fear of of harm is greatly, greatly, greatly exaggerated because it actually takes an awful lot to track down an individual in a data set. You have to have a really, really strong motivation to do that. And I think with proper governance structures and proper safeguards, that it, it's pretty easy to guard against that. So I think it has to be proportionate. We, again, have to invest more in governance. And the more we do share data, the more we're learning about what those governance structures should look like.
0: Medicine's all about a a risk-benefit analysis. And in your article, uh, you cite some benefits, um, some real-world things that have happened as a result of of data sharing. Could you tell us about those?
1: Yeah, the one that I've been thinking about most recently is an example from the world of malaria. Um, So one of the... um, organizations that was a real pioneer in this area before anyone, any of the funders ever decided that they were going to move to support more open data. Um, It was a a kind of alliance, a network of scientists called the uh, Worldwide Anti-Malaria Resistance Network, uh, WARN for short. Um, And they have been working to gather together all of the clinical trials um of that relate to drug efficacy so as you know there was a you know big panic started about uh, 15 years ago that uh, artemisinin which was the sort of last uh, line drug against malaria um might be uh becoming uh being undermined by resistance um, particularly in Southeast Asia, but no one really knew what was happening where. There were hundreds of tiny little clinical trials, a hundred people here, 200 people there. Trying to get a big picture of what was going on was very difficult, um, and so this alliance funded by the, the Gates Foundation um, started to bring together all of those data and to curate them, so standardize uh, the data Um, so that you could compare all of these data sets. So where you had indications of something that was happening in a study of 200 people, suddenly when you have data from 135,000 patients, you can start to see things in very, very clear ways. that You could only begin to intimate from those much smaller studies. So they've now gathered together 135,000, uh, data from 135,000 patients. And because most patients, most clinical trials exclude pregnant women, they exclude people of a certain age, et cetera, et cetera, but one or two creep in here or there by mistake. Suddenly, when you've got all of these data put together, you could put together enough pregnant women to begin to understand what's happening in pregnant women, even if they were all in their own mistake, all excluded from the original protocol. So resources like that have allowed uh, scientists to look for things and to confirm things that otherwise were only guessed at, and a very, very concrete um, Uh, example comes from uh, dosing of DHA papyroquine which is an artemisinin and combination therapy uh, where it was suspected that actually children were being underdosed um, and we had some uh, pharmacological evidence of that but no evidence in, in vivo. And by putting all of these data together um, and doing this analysis across, I think in that case, um, 25,000 samples um, who of people who were on this drug in the right age brackets, uh, they found that indeed, children were being systematically Underdosed, and and that fed directly into um, a change in WHO dosage recommendations, and one would hope that that would feed directly into uh, fewer children uh, failing on treatment and dying of malaria, particularly in sub-Saharan
0: Africa. It's a really visceral benefit, there, not just just some sort of nebulous good. Um, Do you think that your message is sort of becoming the norm now almost, that we're at a point where where all researchers are going to start sharing their data?
1: One of the reasons that people are so uh, paranoid about sharing their data is because of the incentive system that we have in in the health sciences and the academic health sciences, which is still absolutely governed by peer-reviewed publications. And it's difficult to say this to someone who works for a medical journal and a very well-respected one, one with a high impact factor, But that has to change. It's a system that was essentially appropriate for science the way it was done in the 18th century and it hasn't been changed since. But science is very, very different now to the way it was in the 18th century. It's all about collaboration. It's all about building on one another's work in very concrete ways. And the the peer-reviewed publication Uh, model doesn't support that. So if we could change, if you're rewarded for a peer review publication and nothing else then of course you're going to be paranoid about sharing your data because you think you're giving away the only thing that you have as a currency for promotion, for, uh, for advancement, that's the currency that we continue to use. If you were similarly rewarded for contributing data to well-curated, quality-controlled data sets, then you'd find that people would be much, much, much less reluctant to share. If instead of incentivizing peer-reviewed publications, which can take three, four, five years after the locking of a data set to work through and get out, if instead of that you incentivize the earliest possible sharing of data, we'd potentially get much, much faster turnaround of research results into policy change. And after all, we're not doing research just to, you know, get tenure at universities. We're doing it in our fields, particularly in, you know, issues of um, health that are important to poor people in in poor countries or even rich people in rich countries. But in in health issues, you're doing it to help people have longer, healthier lives, and the sooner that happens, the better. So incentive systems that incentivize holding your cards close to your chest and taking for as long as it takes you to get things out, I don't think really promote the goal of turning new knowledge into better policies as quickly as possible.
0: Thanks to Elizabeth Pisani there. Now, her and her colleague's article, Beyond Open Data, Realising the Health Benefits of Sharing Data, is now available on thebmj.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you want to hear more, subscribe to us on iTunes or find our archive on SoundCloud, all freely available. Thanks for listening.